Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Face Podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name's Paulo, and I'm your host. Happy Friday, everyone. I know this episode's a few days later than usual, but given that I let myself slack off last week in terms of the films that I need to watch for the Death Race, I need a little bit more extra time to try to get myself back on pace. Uh, this week, I was able to watch all five feature documentary films, though I guess since I wasn't able to watch the sorts, I'm still a little bit behind. Uh, that being said, you know, this coming weekend, uh, I'm going to be planning on watching most of the animated films and the visual effects, especially since I'm getting my COVID shot actually after I record this episode and release it um so assuming that i get the second symptom set of symptoms um i might just be in bed or on my couch just watching them so uh we'll see how that goes uh though i am excited to get the vaccine uh, anyway before we get to the films that i did watch this past week let's check in on the precursor awards that happened since the last episode and see how those affect the ultimate oscars race so the big award that happened was actually this past Sunday, uh, the Screen Actors Guild Awards. Um, on the men's side of things, things were pretty predictable. Uh, for lead actor, the nominees were the same as the Oscars, Riz Ahmed, Anthony Hopkins, Gary Oldman, and Steve, Yew- Steve Yun, as well as the late Chadwick Boseman, who ultimately took the award. Uh, he's also won the Critics' Choice Award and the Golden Globes, so it's looking pretty locked in for him to win the Oscar. Um, for supporting actor, the nominees were a little bit different than what's in the Oscars versus the SAG Awards. Uh, Jared Leto from The Little Things and Chadwick Boseman from The Die Flo- Five Bloods were nominated for SAG Awards, while Lakeith Stanfield and Paul Racy are only for the Oscars. But the other three, Daniel Kaluuya, Sacha Baron Cohen, and Leslie Odom Jr., were nominated for both. Um, and you know, as with Chadwick Boseman, Daniel Kaluuya won this award, um, also taking it alongside the Critics' Choice and the Golden Globe. So again. The heads, fa- the the favorite heading into the Oscars for supporting actor. Now on the uh, actress side of this of the race, uh, things are got if anything even more confusing. Um, so first off, for lead actress, uh, first off, Amy Adams was nominated for the SAG Awards um, instead of Andrew Day, uh, who's nominated for the Oscars. Um, but Andrew Day had won the Golden Globe Award. So um, and then you know at these awards, you know Viola Davis from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom ended up winning the award. Um, Now, that doesn't clear anything up, like I said, because at the Critics' Choice Award, Carrie Mulligan won for Promising Young Woman. Uh, And then going into the BAFTA Awards this coming weekend, um, of the five Oscar nominees, you know, that that I mentioned, you know, Andrew Day, uh, Viola Davis, and uh, Carrie Mulligan, they are joined by Vanessa Kirby and Frances McDormand, but only those last two, Kirby and McDormand, are not eligible for the BAFTA Awards. So we're going to have four different uh, precursor winners, you know, for the Globes, Critics' Choice, SAG Awards, and BAFTAs for lead actress going into the Oscars. And hey, there's even a chance we may end up getting, uh, you know, five different winners this year. So that'd be complete madness. Uh, over on the supporting actress side, things are a little bit more clear, though not by much and by no means as clear-cut as the men's race. Uh, first off, the nominees for the uh, Screen Actors Guild Awards swapped out Amanda Seyfried for Helena Zengel from News of the World. Um, the winner here was Yoon Yo Jung, who uh, had the most adorable reaction to winning Justice for Nine Eyes and Grandmothers Around the World. Um, now, at the Globes, the winner was Jodie Foster, who isn't even nominated for the Oscars, uh, and Maria Bakalova, uh, 
you know, was uh, was in contention for the lead actress for a comedy and not for supporting, which makes that a little bit of a weird, you know, precursor. And then at the Critics Awards, Maria Bakalova did end up winning there, giving her some momentum. So heading into the BAFTAs, you know, Seyfried and Glenn Close are not eligible for the BAFTAs, so it's going to be uh, between, uh, you know, um, Yo Young Jun uh, and Maria Bakalova here. Um, so I think they are the ones who kind of, you know, neck and neck for... Um, you know, the, the Oscars awards. Perhaps not as bad as the lead actors, you know, four different winners from four different precursors, but I think it's still neck and neck between those two. Um, it could be anyone's game there. Um, I'd like to think Minari, but, you know, again, I'm biased. Uh, finally, for Best Ensemble at the Screen Actors Guild Awards, it's the equivalent of Best Picture. The nominees were The Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Minari, One Night in Miami, and Trial of Chicago 7. Um, I had hopes that Minari would maybe get a win here and build some momentum going into Best Picture Contender. You know, Screen Actors Guild Awards, the largest guild, the voting for the Oscars, so if they won here, that's a sign of support from uh, the... Um, from from the acting guild, but you know, and that that's kind of what led Parasite to you know start taking over awards last year and, and build some momentum. But unfortunately, you know, at least for me and my Oscar pool, uh, you know, the award here went to Trial of Chicago Seven. Um, still a great cast, don't get me wrong. Um, but alas, it looks like Minari's underdog dream is you know slowly fading away at this point. So, you know, I would say before going moving on to the other awards, one major accomplishment this weekend at the SAGs was that the four uh, major acting awards were won by all people of color. Um, again, Bozeman, Kaluuya, Yo Jung-yoon, and... Um and Vela Davis. So, you know, this is the first time since the awards began in 1995 when this happened. Um, it would have been nice, you know, to see a the person of color cast, you know, uh, any of the other four nominees you know, end up winning for the Ensemble Award, but it is what it is. All right, uh, moving on to two Technical Guild Awards that happened this past week. Uh, first up, we have the Hair and Makeup Guild Awards that happened last Saturday. They gave out five film awards um, that were split among three films. Uh, Birds of Prey, who's not nominated for the Oscars, uh, won for Best Contemporary Hair and Contemporary Makeup. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom won for Best uh, Period and Character Hair and Period Character Makeup. And then Pinocchio won, rounded it out with Best Special Effects Makeup. Uh, the other no Oscar nominees uh, Emma had not been nominated within the the uh, Makeup Guild Award, um, and then Mank and Hillbilly Elegy were both up for you know period character uh, categories, which you know Ma Rainey took, um, and Hillbilly Elegy was also up for consideration for special effects against Pinocchio. Um, so based on these, I think going into the Oscars, Ma Rainey's and Pinocchio are the two frontrunners in this category. Uh, looking at the Visual Effects Society Awards, the three films here that won were The Midnight Sky for Best Photoreal VFX, uh, Mank for Best Supporting VFX, and Soul for Best Animated VFX. Uh, only Midnight Sky is up for the Oscars in this category, um, alongside Love and Monsters, Mulan, One and Only Ivan, and Tenet. And of these, only Tenet was up for the Visual Effects Society Awards. So I guess that means that Midnight Sky might be the frontrunner in this case, um, though it's not as well known as, the, as, as Tenet perhaps. Um, in any case, that's all the precursor awards to talk about this week. Next week, you know, I'm doing my absolute best to get the episode out by Wednesday or Thursday, and that means we'll be talking about the Art Director Guild Awards, the Director Guild Awards, the BAFTAs, and the Costume Designer Guild Awards. Now, onto the films that I watched this week. Like I mentioned, these are all documentary features. Um, you know, 
Now that I did say that, but you know, last week was the international film category, uh, or some of them. Uh, and as promised, I made my way through, uh, you know, more of that category by watching the two for one deal of Collective, which was nominated for both international feature film on behalf of Romania as well as documentary feature. Um, it's the first Romanian film to actually be nominated for an Oscar, let alone two. This one premiered at the 2019 Venice Film Festival before releasing wide last year. Honestly, I'll just say this up front. I think in terms of my taste in documentary, this is probably my favorite among the features uh, and probably tied for second among the international films behind Another Round alongside uh, Quo Vitis Ida. Um, though I'm still missing one from that category, The Man Who Sold His Skin, so to be determined on my final rankings there. Now, quality of uh, production is a little bit different than my favorite of the category, um, but we'll get that when we talk about the next film. In any case, Collective recounts the corruption scandal from Romania back in 2015-2016 regarding, of all things, hospital disinfectant. Um, and, you know, I think what really sets it apart is it has unparalleled access to the subject matter. Um, I was actually confused at first, and I thought that it might be a recreation, but no. Uh, apparently, director Alexander Nanao had the foresight to try and capture the moment uh, around the protests happening after, you know, a 2015 fire at the Collective Club um, led to dozens being killed and it in scores more being injured, um, with particular scandal around the treatment of the burn victims and many died in the aftercare at the various burn, vic uh, burn units uh, because it was found that, you know, the quality control of the disinfectant used, uh, you know, allowed for, you know, hospital inf inf infection of the victims leading to uh, unnecessary deaths. Um, so yeah, he ended up you know embedding himself within the newsroom of a whistleblower, uh, you know, of whistleblower journalists, and earned their trust, uh, you know, to film kind of the behind the scenes of them doing their reporting to the point that he was actually able to get the whistleblowers' sources, uh, you know, at the hospital and you know at the manufacturer of the uh, of the disinfectant to agree to be filmed um, as they recounted the corruption throughout the healthcare system of the country, um, which you know eventually would lead to the government resigning. Um, what's more, in the second half of the film, he sifts focus away from the, you know, they're still present, but he still focus away from the whistleblower news porters to the, uh, actually, the new minister of health, um, who has, he tries to untangle the Gordian knot of corruption throughout, you know, the hospitals of bribery and nepotism. Um, ultimately, you know, there isn't much of a resolution to the film, per se, right? Spoilers, but, you know, the, the new minister tries to impose new regulations, um, but he's eventually uh, voted out of office at the next elections. And it seems like the same old system of corruption will continue on. Um, and, you know, while within the context of the film, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end narratively, um, unlike other documentaries, it doesn't try to tie it all up or kind of tell you what the overall message is. You're kind of, you know, and doesn't do like the, here's where they are now ending, right? Um, like that you, you know, lets you feel that like, oh something was accomplished here. I learned something, you know, about you know what humanity is like, um, and it was told to me. You know, you really just get the sense that the cameras just stopped rolling. Right, the final scene is you know some victims, the parents of some victims going to the cemetery, and then the camera just cuts as they you know as they continue as they drive away, um, you know after the anniversary, and you know the story just kind of goes on after what what was told in the film, for better or for worse. Uh, which I think is a little bit more true to life than in, when it comes to document than, than some other documentaries might might have it seem. Um, you know, in addition, I think this is my personal taste, but I really enjoy the lack of talking heads. Right? There's something about you know, there's definitely a time and place to have expert opinions come in, and for you know, for people who witness it firsthand to share their testimony and experience. But there's also something about you know, just you know, 
what 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 now calls observational filmmaking, just turning on the camera, seeing what happens, not playing in advance, and just going right along for the story and just witnessing living history. Uh, in any case, you know, I think this is definitely one of my favorites for the category, um, and I think it's definitely uh, it's currently available for Hulu. Like I said, a two for one deal when it comes to nominees for Death Race. Not the lightest subject matter, but you know, one that's definitely very gripping. And I never thought I'd care so much about disinfectant. Um, well, though, I guess with COVID, you can't really say that. Though that's actually interesting because it turns out that you know when he got nominated and shortlisted for you know uh, for the Oscars, um, the now was actually up for an award from the Romanian government, which he kind of, um, you know, he kind of uh, rejected because of one, the continued corruption within the system, as well as you know, um, their not support of the non-support of the arts during the COVID pandemic. So, just some more interesting out of film context. Anyway, like I said, you know, this is collective is definitely my my favorite film in terms of production but in terms of like just an enjoyable film you know a little bit more lighthearted. um we actually have another international documentary called the mole agent um it had actually been submitted and shortlisted in consideration not only for documentary feature but also for international feature from chile um and this was screened back at sundance 2020 uh this one follows you know um the more warm-hearted subject matter though a little bit bittersweet tinge um of you know 83 year old sergio a recent widower who is recruited by a private investigator to act as a spy within a nursing home on behalf of a client uh, who suspects that her mother is being abused within the nursing home. Now, if the premise of an elderly retiree who is just learning how to use FaceTime and WhatsApp uh, tries trying to be a spy, uh, camera glasses and all, doesn't appeal to you, I, mean, I think you're dead inside. But uh, that aside, if the premise isn't enough, Sergio, our main character, is quite the charmer um, where you know he's a bit of a, actually a heartbreaker within in the 90% po- female population of the nursing home, even at one point in the film being crowned quote-unquote king of the nursing home, kind of like prom king or prom queen. Uh, he's just like such a harmer, such a heartwarming soul um you know now apparently the film director had embedded a film crew within the nursing home under the premise of making a more traditional documentary about the facility um so that she could get you know more third person shots of sergio as he moves around and not rely on his first person camera shots now if you stop and think about it you know that may defeat the purpose of trying to see if the mother of the client was actually being abused or not i mean you know what nursing home would mistreat residents if they knew that cameras were rolling all the time um, but it quickly becomes apparent that that's not actually the purpose of the film you know of whether or not the nursing home is abusing them or not um, you know you get essentially right like part of Sergio's job is to give daily reports he essentially records voice memos in whatsapp uh, journal style telling his employer about the daily life at the nursing home what he ate who he interacted with you know like living conditions and you kind of start to see that they're not documenting the spy game they're documenting just the human condition of what life is like in the nursing home uh, from you know the poet you know this lady who likes making poems to pickpockets to those who are lonely to you know some who might have been fixated on their childhood and are asking where their mom is, why she's not picking them up, uh, to those who, you know, again, fall in love with Sergio to some degree. Um, you know, at one point, and, you know, you, you start questioning, right, like, especially on the one about, you know, the one who are lonely, who their family doesn't visit as much. At one point, Sergio even questions, you know, if, if the, is, like, if the mother is quote-unquote being mistreated by the, the staff, which he concludes they aren't, like, they're taking good care of her, um, you know, 
But what about the daughter? He'd never seen her in the three months that he spent in the nursing home visit her mother, right? So you know what is what what's that about? And he doesn't. It's not meant to pass judgment on people, but you know it's. And again, you're not told what to feel or how to make sense of what you're seeing. You're just meant to witness it, kind of like you know collective, kind of like that living document. Perhaps not as you know a historical moment, considering this innately human intimate moment as slice of life and you draw your own conclusions and you know perhaps that conclusion being that hey you should call your mom a little bit more often and tell her that you love her uh, anyway the mole agent strongly recommend you check it out it's available on hulu now the next documentary comes from a producing team that behind last year's winner for best documentary feature of american factory uh, in a similar vein Crip Camp uh, follows uh, is produced by the Obama fam uh, the Obamas you know Ob uh, Barack and, and myself a uh, higher production higher ground production company um, and captures like American Factory uh, a slice of Americana you know usually relating to some sort of struggle and a challenge of one ways you know one group's way of living uh, in American Factory it was factory workers in Dayton Ohio as a Chinese company assumed ownership of the factory but in Crip Camp it's about the disabled civil rights movement uh, stemming from Camp Jeanette. Uh, a summer camp in upstate New York that, you know, led to, you know, one, led to these disabled youth feeling normal for a summer, right? Like, they're just part of, that's just part of everyday life. But also, it acted as a breeding ground for their later adult life when they would become activists for, you know, disability rights. Um, this one's a little bit less observational, a little bit more narrative, you know, giving the context for the history of, you know, the disability rights movement um, and, you know, sit-ins and various protests and whatnot. Um, definitely, you know, like, this, to some degree, there's a bit of like a you know like a, a, a 70s protest vibe to this um as well right but uh you know and, and there's definitely it's not so much observational as narrative in that they bring in these people and they give their recounting of what happened there's these moments in history and their thoughts and feelings about it um now perhaps it was a case of my expectations being a little bit off but the actual part about life at the camp uh, which again not it's definitely crucial to the film you need that in order to ground the film and see where these individuals grew, came from and their perspective and how it led to the later disability advocacy work but that disability advocacy work does take up the majority of the film probably the two latter two-thirds of the film um and so you know i would have loved to see more of the cat portion but you know it is what it is maybe they just didn't have like the footage or or it would have dragged on too long right um that said i i still did enjoy the, the triumph of the narrative about the disability activism and the use of you know historical footage combined uh with the you know the the interviews and it just gives a feel-good story right um i wouldn't see, be surprised if this one ends up winning in the end it's a little bit more conventional a little bit more feel-good um and it would be very well deserved you know it did win the audience award at sundance 2020 when it premiered um, and you know it also won the International Documentary Association's Best Feature Award for 2021 uh, in any case you can check this out on Netflix now also on Netflix is the nature documentary My Octopus Teacher this one follows South African film director Craig Foster, who, finding himself in a creative rut, ends up going freediving uh, in a kelp forest near his home with his camera and finds and eventually befriends and makes a connection with an unnamed octopus who he visits every day. Now, the positive of this film first, it's beautifully shot. And, you know, the fact that he's able to get so close and intimate with this octopus really allows for some footage that I don't think I've ever really seen in other nature documentaries out there. So in terms of getting swanky while 
wallpapers of underwater life in brilliant color. You know, this film is up there with the best. Uh, that being said, you know, rather than letting the film have calming narration from the likes of David Attenborough or something similar, or letting it stand on its own for just the, the, the beauty of the footage, uh, it's intercut and voiced over with Foster giving his interpretation, you know, after the fact of the events he encountered in the kelp forest and tying it back to his creative rut and feeling like he can't be a good dad and the mortality of life and it it just didn't work for me, right? A little bit way too corny, cheesy, and frankly, he low-key wants to be a hentai protagonist with the way he talks about the octopus and her tentacles and how he aches to see her every day and she gives his life meaning and like someone with a high school crust. Um, definitely a little bit creepy, you know, and, you know, maybe, you know, it, it felt also like a little bit pompous, like, oh, there are things we've never seen before, you know, in doing this, which granted may or may not be true, right? But I feel like, you know, he... It definitely doesn't feel like a scientific nature drama, right? It definitely feels like a one man's quest in interpreting the world, which I guess there is a place for that that kind of film in the world, but it's just not one I think that, that appeals to me. Uh, despite my misgivings, though, it won the Producers Guild Documentary Award, so we'll see how it performs at the Oscars in the end. Uh, finally, the last film focuses on a similar situation of an individual and their interpretation of the events affecting their life. Uh, Time follows the story of Sybil Fox Richardson, uh, who is fighting to free her husband, Rob Richardson, from a 60-year prison sentence for engaging in armed bank robbery while raising her six sons. I can see what the team behind this film was trying to do. You know, it marries footage, uh, you know, new footage and interviews, you know, of that process, which, though, to be frank, they don't really go into exactly what it takes to try to get her husband out uh, in detail, uh, combines that with home footage shot over the 18 years of raising her kids uh, as a functionally single mom, uh, bringing to light the issues within the criminal justice system where bureaucracy and overtly punitive sentencing and perhaps some degree of, you know, systemic racism can keep families apart for decades. But again, this film just doesn't work for me. First off, you know, they, they, they did the film and they released it in black and white, which... I didn't really see what's the point of it being black and white. I never was really quite sure of that. Um, and then in doing the research of this film, there's a degree of, shall I call it, irresponsibility regarding the subject matter that I really can't let slide. You know, yes, there is an inherent institutional racism in the prison system that makes it hard for black individuals, uh, and it really needs an overhaul to uh, especially avoid abuses within the system. Uh, and especially in encroaching on civil rights. But, you know, something about the self-entitlement, call it, that the Richardsons have surrounding the situation just rubs me the wrong way. I mean, yeah, they, they basically admit, yes, they committed this crime. They robbed the bank because they, quote-unquote, were in a desperate situation regarding with their financial situation for the urban clothing store. But... Then they gave us the socked Pikachu phase when they when they go to prison, and they're like, this isn't fair, right? Like, yeah, part of it is it's a really long sentence. That's maybe not fair, but it also just feels, like, very, very entitled. Uh, on top of that, the film never mentions, you know, doing research, I found that they actually committed jury tampering, right? They tried, they basically visited two of the jurors in their case uh, with their children, trying to present them with additional evidence, trying to appeal to their humanity to try to get a lighter sentence and not and convict them as not guilty, um, which, you know, one, is a problematic in and of itself, but then two, they tried to get it a mistrial because they said the fact that they had to have two jury members thrown out meant that they needed a mistrial because it prejudiced the remaining jurors against them, um, which, you know, basically makes them feel like they're trying to portray themselves as the perpetual victims here uh, when they're very clearly not, 
right? Um, now, there are many ways, right? The prison industrial complex definitely deserves a film about it and the issues around it. Um, you know, if it had been the case that, you know, he... But I don't think they are the people to be the ambassadors for that for that message, right? You know, you know if there are... If he'd been incarcerated for having marijuana, right, and was in prison for an absurdly long sentence, right, like I would have been more sympathetic there, right? Like that's definitely like an unjust situation. Um, but because of their outrage and entitlement, I just couldn't invest in myself in them and their characters and their arc at all. And again, they were never really clear about like what are they trying to do, how to like free him and get him out. Like they didn't really make that clear. So there were other stories out there of people impacted by systemic racism, but you know, this is. Without the full context of what they did, I think this does it more disservice uh, for that than actually helping the cause. Um, and you know, it's definitely okay for your documentarians to have a perspective and a point of view. And you know, the whole point of editing is choosing what to include and what not to include. But you know, when it comes to at the cost of obscuring and hiding relevant material, facts to the subject matter they're presenting, I can't in good faith endorse this film. Watch it if you must on Amazon Prime for the death face, but otherwise, uh, I would not recommend this. Uh, in any case, that's all the films for this week's Oscars Death Race. Uh, with these completed, I am now at 30 out of 41 features and 1 out of uh, 15 sorts. So that's 31 out of 56 films total. Uh, next week, I'm going back to having guests on the show with a member of our Discord who is super into animation joining me to go over the animated future films that I haven't talked about yet, as well as you know the sorts and the visual effects films. So those are going to be Over the Moon, Sonda Seep Farmageddon, Wolfwalkers for Animated, and In Love Monsters, Midnight Sky, and one and only Ivan for visual effects. Um, but yeah, uh, look forward to that next week, and otherwise, good luck with the Death Race. Um, that wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know how your Death Race is going over on Twitter at OscarsDRaceCast or via email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at gmail.com. What did you think of the documentary features? Who's your favorite? Uh, make sure you're subscribed to the show on your podcast service of choice, uh, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or, and if you can leave a review or, you know, uh, or just share the film with a friend who loves movies any of that is super helpful if you want to directly financially contribute to the show you can do so on patreon linked in the show notes uh, also linked there will be my letterbox account under the username of ninja boy boy with an i uh, also be sure to check out the oscars race and oscars death race subreddits as well as the oscars death race discord um, we have the academy of death races coming up again um, as well as the, the community website uh, music to, is provided by kevin macleod you can find his stuff at incompetent.fuelmusic.io editing and production is provided by ninja boy media that's it for this week this has been the apollo of the oscars death race podcast until next time i'll be here trying to watch all the oscar nominees or die trying mm-hmm.